Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Thank you all for joining us for worship. We're in Exodus. We're in chapter 18 in a series called Freed to Follow. And if you've ever read through Exodus before, you may have noticed that Exodus 18 seems a little out of place. Um, This first half of Exodus is really action-packed, and you get to chapter 18, and it might seem like a bit of a distraction from the drama that's occurring in this account, Um, especially if you've come to think of this chapter as kind of a lesson in organizational management. It's as if, you know, you have the fighting with the Amalekites, and then you have Moses going up on Sinai, and in the middle you have this kind of HR meeting with Toby, where he says, you know, hey, make sure you avoid burnout, and Make sure you get good people to help you and make sure you delegate. You know, it seems kind of weird, kind of out of place. But thankfully, guys, there's a lot more to this chapter than that. Um, This meeting with Jethro actually acts as a hinge between the two high points in the book. There's the high point of the Exodus itself when God freezes people from Egypt. And then there's a high point of Mount Sinai and receiving of God's law. And in the middle, there's kind of this hinge chapter. And that hinge chapter is chapter 18. It looks back to the Exodus and it looks forward to Mount Sinai. Now we're almost to Sinai, but there's two things that we need to see before we get there. And they're in chapter 18. And the two things are this. What's God's plan for the nations? How does the good news of the Exodus relate to the nations? That would be the first question that we're going to look at. And then the second one would be, Um, How is God going to alter his people to make them the vehicle for that message that goes out to the nations? And so those are the two things we're going to look at this morning. Both God's plan for the nations and God's plan for his people to reach the nations. First, let's look at God's plan for the nations. Look at verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all the good that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The name of the other was Eleazar, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law of all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. The context here is a family reunion. Moses' wife, Zipporah, and their two kids had had gone away to stay with his father-in-law, Jethro. But now they've all come back in this great family reunion. And it's here, guys, that we see how the nations fit into God's plan of salvation. I mean, how does the good news of the Exodus relate to them? And I say that because there's actually an intentional contrast here that's being set up between Jethro in this chapter and the Amalekites in chapter 17. Because what we can see between 17 and 18, if you lay them down next to each other, is how they mirror each other. Um, In chapter 17, it says the Amalekites came and attacked. In chapter 18, it says Jethro came and greeted. 
So there's an intentional contrast there. In both of them, you have Moses sitting to mediate. In both of them, you have Moses tired and he chooses men to help him. And so there's a mirroring between chapters 17 and 18, and that's meant to set up a contrast between the Amalekites' response to God and Jethro's response. There's two ways here for the nations and every individual to respond to the good news of God's victory for his people. The Amalekites, their response is fear and fight it. Jethro's response is rejoicing and receiving. And Jethro's response here, guys, would be very surprising to the original hearers. I mean, Jethro was a Midianite, and the Midianites were known to be the enemies of God's people, not their friends. It was the Midianites that sold Joseph as a slave to Potiphar in Genesis 37. It was the Midianites who tried to lure Balaam to curse Israel in Numbers 22. It was the Midianites who raided Israel day after day until Gideon defeated him in the book of Judges. And so the Midianites would not be somebody you would think that would come and rejoice in the good news of God's victory for his people. But here we see this amazing, wonderful response of Jethro to this news of God's victory for his people. Look at verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And so Jethro hears this news of the victory of God, and he rejoices. It was attractive news to him. It was good news. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, guys, we have even more attractive good news than Moses had. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. The New Testament word for gospel actually literally means good news. It's, it was usually used of news of rescue. And so guys, the gospel is news, not advice. All, uh, all other religions offer advice. All other religions say, here's your problem with God or with the universe or whatever, and here's what you need to do to set that right. It's advice, that's what religions offer. But guys, the gospel's different. The gospel is news, not advice. Advice says what you need to do to set things right. News says what God has already done to set things right. Advice says do. News says done. Advice says this is, this is what you need to do to make it happen. News says, wow, look what's already happened. As the gospel is the good news that God has already done everything needed to adopt you as his own and to give you everlasting happiness in a world made new. That's good news. And it's good news, guys, for sinners who deserve God's wrath. Sinners like all of us. I love in the, the Book of Common Prayer, the prayer of confession, it says this, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred. We have strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much in the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy law. We have left undone those things that ought to be done, and we have done those things that ought not to be done. There is no health in us. That's us, right? We have done things that ought not to be done, and we've left undone a lot of things that we should have done. That's sin. That's our sin debt before God. But here's the amazing news. Is it Jesus in his 30 plus year perfect life has done all the things you left undone? Isn't that good news? That Jesus, he lived this 30 plus year long perfect life to do the things that you have failed to do. And Jesus on the cross has undone all the things that you shouldn't have done, right? Uh, Christians, you need to hear this especially. And you need to believe it and you need to rejoice in it. This is your news. This is what you have. So often when we hear the gospel, we think, oh yeah, that's something we need to give to non-Christians. But guys, the gospel's for us too right? The gospel is for Christians. This is what stirs us up. 
This is what gives us joy. This is what gives us perseverance. This is what transforms us on the inside is the gospel. And I think especially for you Christians who are kind of um, either box checkers or guilt wallowers this morning, um, maybe you're always thinking about checking all the boxes and maybe some of those boxes are even, you know, man-made inventions of what a Christian should be and not even biblical, but you're a box checker or maybe, you know, you're a guilt wallower, which is, that, you know, you have sins in the past that you've repented of, that you received God's pardon for, and you still kind of churn over it. Guys, that's why Jesus had both a perfect life and a sacrificial death. By his perfect life, he has done all the things you've left undone. And by his sacrificial death, he has wiped away all the things you've done that you shouldn't have done. It's double imputation, right? Double imputation, meaning that Jesus's righteousness has been credited to you because your sin was credited to him on the cross. The reformers called this the great exchange, right? The great exchange that you received his righteousness, he received your sin on the cross. And so Jesus's life has checked all the boxes you should have checked and his Death on the cross has washed away all your guilt. And so now you stand before God. If you're a Christian trusting in Jesus, you stand before God in the holiness of Jesus. And as a result, Tim Keller puts it this way. Though we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, at the same time in Christ, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. Isn't that amazing? Let me read it to you again. Though we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves then we would ever dare believe at the same time, because we're in Christ, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. And when you find that news and you hear that news and you believe that news, guys, it gives you a joy that changes you from the inside out. It's like an internal combustion engine, right? That, that a car moves forward because of tiny explosions that are happening within the motor, right? Well, it's those, it's those repeated explosions of our joy in, in the gospel, of our joy in Christ that propels us to do God's commands. It's gospel joy-powered transformation. That's good news. That's not something that you do. That's something that you respond to. Like Jethro, you simply say, wow, what a wonderful God. I want in. I want in on that news. And so that's God's plan for the nations. That good news um, is there to attract the nations to the Lord. And Exodus 18 is this hinged chapter because it looks back to the Exodus and says, how does the Exodus connect to the nations? And the answer is they're invited in. The nations are all invited in. This is an exclusive. This is inclusive for all who would trust in Jesus Christ. And that was God's plan all along. I mean, God promised Abraham centuries earlier. He said this, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He also told them, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And so the, the plan from the beginning was for Abraham, the father of the Jews, to have a family that would include both Jews and Gentiles, anyone who would put their trust in him. And so throughout the Old Testament, you see Gentiles being invited in and actually being picked up along the way. It's almost like you got a, a, a bus and the, you know, invite people in and they hop on, hop into the bus, right? And when the bus left Egypt, there were already Gentiles on board. It says in Exodus 12 that a mixed multitude with, went with them. So anyone that was in Egypt that wanted to trust in the Lord was allowed to come and come along with them. And then here we see them picking up Jethro, a Midianite. And then when they get to Jericho, they pick up Rahab, a prostitute who was a Canaanite who believed in, in the Lord. Um, she had heard the news of the Exodus and responded. 
And in the days of the judges, they picked up Ruth the Moabite, who also trusted in the Lord. In the days of Elijah, they picked up Naaman the Syrian. In the days of the exile, they even picked up uh, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar climbed aboard, <laughs> trusting in the Lord, who's a Babylonian, and countless others. And it's expanded even since the time of Christ, right down to you, if you love this good news. And the outcome is described in Revelation 7, verse 9. It says, After I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You guys realize that the church is the most diverse human movement in history, by far. The church is the most diverse human movement in history. And we see a foretaste of that even in verse 12. Take a look at it. It says, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifice to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This, this picture is, is really a picture of God's plan for the world, a sacrifice that would bring both Jew and Gentile together to eat together in the presence of God. Here we have natural enemies made family because God has made them his family. God is turning division into diversity. It's amazing. And you know what's kind of amazing is the first sacrifice that happened. So they were they had told Pharaoh they wanted to go out in the desert to make sacrifices to the Lord and all that stuff, right? Well, the first sacrifice that's actually covered in Exodus is this one, and it's offered by the Gentile Jethro. And so in verses 1 through 12, we see God's plan to take the good news to all nations. And in the rest of the chapter, what we're going to see is that God's people will need to change to accomplish that mission. God has a plan for his people to reach the nations, and the way it's set up right now is not his plan. <laughs> take a look at verse 13. It says, The next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning to evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he had done for the people, he said, What is this you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make known to them the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. And so what we see in the second half of Exodus 18 is how God's people will have to change if they're going to reach the nations. I mean, what they're doing right now will not work. What they're doing right now is a mess. You've got these huge lines. You've got lots of waiting. It's like the worst day ever at the DMV, right? All these people are standing around all day waiting to, to get answers from Moses. And, and there are people of maybe 2 million right now. There's no way that that's going to scale to the 2 billion people we have today that, uh, that claim Christ. There's a severe bottleneck in this whole system. And the bottleneck's name is Moses. And so Jethro has some counsel. Look at verse 19. Now obey my voice and I will give you advice and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their case to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men for all people, men who fear God and are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and of hundreds and of fifties and of tens. 
and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter shall be brought to you, but every small matter shall be decided themselves. So it will be easier for you, and you will be able to bear the burden. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all the people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all they had said. And Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, over chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. Now, some have taken this passage, which has wonderful wisdom in it um, for any group to do, you know, and delegate and you know, seek help and all that kind of stuff. Um, but some people have taken this kind of passage in Exodus and made it a model for church leadership. It's called the so-called Moses model of leadership, of church leadership, um, that you would have one man, he's called from God to lead the church. He hears from God and he gets a vision from God about what the church should do or be. And then he gives it to the people, right? And no one should hold him back. He's accountable to God alone, but other people should come alongside him like this text says, kind of help him implement the vision God's given him. That's called the so-called Moses model of church leadership. Uh, it's very popular today. I'm sure you've seen it. Um, I believe that the Moses model of church leadership only belongs in the Old Testament with Moses, and we should leave it where we found it. And the reason I believe that is that the Moses model isn't God's design for the New Testament church. And uh, we know that in a few ways. First, Israel was a theocracy. Israel was both church and state. Um, the New Testament shows that both the church and the state have separate authorities, real authorities, separate powers. But in this case, the, Israel is actually both. It's church and state. So we're not going to take a model that's for a theocracy and apply it to a church. Also, guys, Moses is nothing like a pastor. He's the mediator between God and his people. And thirdly, the, the New Testament gives us a model for church leadership, and it's not this. There's no Moses in it. There's no mediator. There's no one guy leading the church. Instead, the church is led by multiple equal pastor elders with the help of deacons. That's what we see throughout the New Testament. It's actually pretty straightforward, and it looks nothing like what we see in Exodus. You might ask, well, why? Why would, why would God's design for the New Testament church be so different than his design for his people here in Exodus? And, and the way I'd answer that is, is with another question, which is, what's the problem that Moses had in Exodus 18? Like, what's the real problem that needs to be solved here? And you might say, well, you know, the people needed Moses to tell them what, what God had to say about their disputes. And I'd say, yeah, that's true. Um, but what's the most fundamental issue that needs to be solved in Exodus 18? And um, why can't they handle these disputes themselves? And the answer really is, is that they don't have God's law. They don't have God's law. Moses gets God's law, but they don't have God's law. They don't have God's word for themselves at this point in chapter 18. The people didn't have God's word. They didn't have God's law. They had to get it from Moses, who is the kind of their direct line to God. Moses is the mediator and he gives it to them. God speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to the people. Can you see why it's so exhausting? There's this bottleneck of Moses being the one through which God's word comes. And so Jethro's advice is good, it's helpful, but it didn't really solve the problem. You know what did help, though? And this is kind of how um, Exodus 18 acts as a hinge here. What really did help a lot is Exodus 20, when God gives the law at Mount Sinai. Um, God gives the law at Mount Sinai, and, and for the first time, they have written word of God. 
first one written on stone, right? That written law of God. And that written law of God didn't just tell them how to live. It taught them about who God is. It allowed them to know God in a deeper way than they could know him through Moses, who was their only source of God's word before. And so Exodus 20 is the beginning of centuries of God giving little bits here and there of his written word. Pick up a little here, pick up a little there, and it's a centuries-long process whereby God gave us his very written words, which you hold in your hands, which is so amazing. And, and one of our works as, as the church is now to, to spread that word of God out to other people, to give it to other people. Lorian, our missionary in the Middle East, she actually is working on translating into a, a new language, parts of the Old Testament. And so this book, guys, this written word of God is such a tremendous gift. And Exodus 18 shows us what it's like not to have it. Um, I love what the, the Gideon Bibles, what they would have in the front about the Bible. This is what it says in the first pages there of the Gideon Bible. It says this, the Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. Its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, too, heaven is open and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject. Our good is its design, and the glory of God is its end. And then speaking of the word, it should fill our memory, rule our hearts, and guide our feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given to you in life. It will be open at the judgment. It will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility rewards the greatest labor and will condemn all those who trifle with its sacred contents. Amen. It's amazing. The amazing gift that you have holding God's word. And Exodus 18 shows us what it's like not to have it. But there's one other thing that people lack in Exodus 18 that, that make them need Moses so much for all these things. And it's that Moses has something they don't have, which is access to the presence of God. I mean, Moses was able to meet with God in his tent. You know, they would all watch from their tent doors as he entered his tent to meet with the living God. They didn't have that access in their own tents. And, and it made Moses' life hard. And you can see that actually in another incident in Numbers 11. It's worth turning there. Numbers 11 is many, many years later. Numbers 11 verse 4, it says, Now the rabble, this is talking about the people of Israel, they're now called the rabble. The rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. <laughs> That's great, right? They're slaves. Cost them nothing. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. And now our strength is dried up and we have nothing to look at except for this manna. Okay, it was for them to eat, not to look at. But anyway, so, and then Moses, God, we've already seen this kind of thing happen before, is mad and he's exhausted. Verse 10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at their door of their tent, and the anger of the Lord burned hotly, and Moses was displeased. And Moses said to the Lord, why has your servant done, dealt ill with me? Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have you not, why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay this burden on me? And then he says this, he goes, did I conceive all these people? 
Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom and nurse them as a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? It's like, are these my babies and I have to carry them around? Why am, am I to, where am I to get meat for all these people? He says, for they weep before me saying, give me meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, he says to the Lord, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I might not see my wretchedness. Once again, we see a picture that the, the Moses model didn't even work for Moses, right? Not at all. I'm always amazed when people try it because I'm thinking like, did you ever see the life of Moses? Like that dude was always exhausted and angry all the time, right? Um, you don't want to be anyone's Moses, that's for sure. And so the Moses responds to the plan in verse 16. The Lord says, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel. And so what you have here is it sounds very much like Exodus 18. So the Lord tells him to gather some elders together. And the Lord puts his spirit on those people, those 70 elders. And they're prophesying and they're you know filled with the spirit. And then one other thing happens. There's two guys that actually are filled with the spirit. And they, they end up inside the camp. Look at verse 25. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. And two men remained in the camp, one named Eldab and one named Edab, and the spirit rested on them. And they were among those who were registered, but they not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldab and Medab are prophesying in the camp. And Joseph, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. And listen to Moses' response. He's got these guys that are like filled with the Spirit, kind of running around. And he says, Moses' response is this, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his Spirit on all of them. Moses was like, Man, this is my dream. My dream would be that for all these people to have the same access to the Holy Spirit that I have. And what's cool is many, many years later, after Jesus died and resurrected and ascended at Pentecost, something we're going to celebrate in two weeks, the Holy Spirit descends on all his people. He says, in the last days, it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he talks about on sons and daughters and young men and old men and servants and free people all receiving the Holy Spirit. Guys, the problem in Exodus 18 is now solved. The bottleneck has been smashed. All of God's people now have his full word and all of God's people can be filled full of his Holy Spirit. You now have as a Christian, you now have an ability to have a portable tent of meeting. Anytime you want, you can open up God's very word and pray and his spirit can create a time of communion with him that Old Testament people dreamed of. In fact, it's more than that. You are the portable tent of meeting. You are the tabernacle. You are one of the people to proclaim the good news. You think, okay, well, what is it? where does that leave church leadership? What do they do? Well, Ephesians 4 says that our role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Our job is to equip ministers, and that's you. You are that minister. The word of God is yours. The spirit is yours. The ministry of your is yours. And your ministry is wonderful. It's to take the attractive news of Jesus, God's victory for his people out. And so many people are going to receive it with joy, like Jethro did. They're going to rejoice at that news. We need to make sure that they hear it. Amen. Lord's Supper is an announcement of that good news. Paul said that every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus are proclaimed in this bread and this cup. And just like in our chapter in Exodus 18, it says they ate before the Lord together. We in the Lord's Supper together eat in the presence of God. Many different backgrounds. A few of us would even be friends if it weren't for Christ, but now we're family. We're more than friends. And I was thinking as we take the Lord's Supper this Sunday, let's look forward to our reunion as a church. Um, It's been a long time. (laughs) It's been a long time that we've been apart. And uh, we're going to have a meeting soon. Um, Look in your email about that um, over Zoom, where we're going to talk about what our plan is to kind of incrementally be able to, to return to services. So uh, check your email for details on that one. I want to make sure you come to that meeting via Zoom. And even more, guys, let's look forward to our reunion that we have with each other in the presence of Christ when he returns, when he comes back for us and we dwell forever with him and with each other. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that the way of salvation, the way to you is good news, not advice. Father, Son, Spirit, you have done everything needed to adopt us as your kids And promise us everlasting joy with you in the world to come. Help us, Lord, to be so full of joy in the gospel that it changes us from the inside out. And so full of the gospel that it overflows out of us to the nations. God, you are good. We love you. And all God's people say, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.com. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.